2: Welcome to the New Books
1: Network. Welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Jack Gunther, and it's my pleasure today to speak to Professor Sean Andrew Wempe, Assistant Professor of History at California State University Bakersfield, and author of Revenants of the German Empire, Colonial Germans, Imperialism, and the League of Nations, published with Oxford University Press in 2019. Sean, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you.
2: Thanks for having me, Jack, and I'm glad to be here.
1: Thank you for being here with us. If you don't mind, could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, so uh, my name is Sean Andrew Wimpey. As Jack mentioned, I'm a professor here at CSUB in Bakersfield, um, where I teach history of modern Europe, and I also teach history of public health, which is a new interest Uh, along with history of imperialism and a a range of other issues. uh, Sort of had to take a swing at a whole bunch of stuff in a small department. But I love it here. Um, I got my uh, undergrad at Missouri State uh, way back in the Stone Age. Um, And uh, that's where I grew up, was in Missouri, Illinois, and Arkansas. Moved around a lot uh, as a kid because of my dad's job in aluminum die cast. Um, And then... um, after, uh, undergrad, I went to grad school at Emory University in Atlanta, uh, where I finished up in 2015 and then, um, went on to teach at Washington State University before coming here, uh, in 2018. <laughs> so it's been a bit of a wild ride. Um, and then as far as what drew me to this profession or this, this, this field, I had been wanting to be an educator since I was six years old, and that was in part because of my mother, who was a first-generation, non-traditional student. So when she was going to college and dealing with us kids, with Dad's help, Dad was around a lot, um, both of my parents were very active, uh, we uh, occasionally had to go to night classes with Mom when Dad was working nights and he couldn't look after us while we were while she was in classes. And that sort of drew me to the professor pretty early on because there were professors that allowed her to do that. Uh, And then seeing her graduate is one of my earliest memories and that really had a big impact. Um, And then as far as history, that interest came a little bit later, uh, building up over the years through several great history teachers and professors over the years. Probably the most impactful, however, was, strangely enough, given the research that I do, a French medievalist at Missouri State named Andrew Lewis, who was a MacArthur Fellow, which is kind of rare to find in Missouri uh, at times, Um, but uh, Andy was fantastic. From day one in undergrad, uh, I had told him what I had hoped to do, he showed me the deep dark abyss that was the academic job market before I even continued with pursuing graduate applications and um, was just a really great mentor at every stage uh, up until he passed away in 2018. And I was able to tell him not long before that that I had gotten the the book contract on this book, uh, an offer of a second book contract, and the job. Uh, interview that eventually became this position.
0: So that was really
2: uh, great to be able to share that success with him, since he was very critical to that at every stage, um, um, freshman year to basically the job market. <laughs> uh, so that was really
1: incredible. terrific. Thank you. That's an excellent story, and I'm sure your six-year-old self would be impressed if he knew. Yeah,
2: uh, my six-year-old self might be a little surprised at what I'm doing. Considering where I grew up and how I grew up, (laughs) but uh, luckily my parents were very supportive at every stage too, so that helped. Uh, And then they kind of wound up with a a bunch of academics in the family because my kid's sister does public health statistics, (laughs) and then uh, my little brother uh, does uh, was working on genetics for a time, and then shifted out of that for more lucrative jobs. (laughs) So uh, we sort of that uh, very different career trajectory than where our parents were uh, all those years
1: ago. That's it's great to have it in the family like that, though. Although, I suppose you're the outlier as a historian. Would you tell us a little bit, actually, about what you do and about the book, Revenants of the German Empire?
2: So, um, as far as what I do, uh, um, are you are you talking mostly about the, what the profession entails and things of that nature? or um, just or your to, yeah. your
1: specific areas of interest and how oh, they yeah. come out in the book yeah.
2: all right so my my areas of interest have shifted and morphed over the years but they've they pretty much stayed constant with modern germany uh imperialism uh sub-saharan africa internationalism and the newest edition uh that's not that new uh it's been there since 2009 is an interest in history of science and history of public health and particular, which didn't come across in this first book, but is definitely there in the second one, uh, and the third one that I'm planning down the road. Uh, but in this book in particular, um, I was really interested in looking at what happens to the German colonial empire, specifically those who were the most invested in it after 1919 when the empire is dismantled and uh, distributed among various European and non-European powers uh, as mandates of the League of Nations, which creates some really interesting sovereignty debates. How I came to be interested in this topic is a much longer story as well. And once again, that ties to undergrad, uh, my freshman year of college at Missouri State. I was in the library, I was taking an African history course at the time, and I was working up a a research paper for that class my first semester of college. So I was wandering around the library as you do. This is when Missouri State was still operating on card catalogs and things. Uh, Their computer system came while I was in uh, undergrad there and got more advanced over time. And that first semester, I'm wandering through the library, collecting things on... uh, Rwanda was the paper I was going to do, but then I came across more and more stuff on German colonial holdings, and as I started pouring through the library shelves, I found this really old book from 1926, written by Dr. Heinrich Schnee, who's a key figure in this this work, who was a German colonial governor of what was then German East Africa uh, in the colonial period, but in 1926, he's obviously out of a job because the empire was gone in 1919. Mm -hmm. And this book, German Colonization, Past and Future, The Truth About the German Colonies, is basically a a German colonial revisionist history that he's writing from his perspective. But what fascinated me about it was not the book so much itself, but the book plate on the front, uh, which noted, donated to Southwest Missouri State Teachers College, which was the name of the university at that time, back in the 1920s, 1927, by the German Colonial Society. So uh, 19-year-old me had a lot of questions all of a sudden. Um, First of all, uh, why is the German Colonial Society donating this book to a school in the middle of southwest Missouri? Uh, What's their deal here? Um, And what are they hoping to achieve with this and that just led to more and more questions over the next four years of what's going on in this interwar period after the empire is gone and how are they engaging with this international dynamic and this full-court press sort of a PR relations for Germany's colonial legacy that's even going so far as to try and impact educational institutions in Missouri of all places. (laughs) Uh, Why do the Germans think this is useful? What's 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 the uh, end game here? And so those questions just continued to build over uh, undergrad. And then that's what I put into my application for grad school is these are my interests. This is what I'm fascinated with is what these individuals are doing after the empires removed in 1919. And I just continued to explore. under the uh, advisement of Dr. Brian Vick and Dr. Astrid M. Eckert at Emory, who were my key advisors there while I was in uh, graduate school and my doctoral program. In the book, what I wind up discovering is that this was part of a larger plan to try and recuperate Germany's colonial image, but not only that. Uh, they were trying to find ways to uh, these colonial Germans that are so much a figure uh, of the colonial existence in the brief time that the empire exists from 1884 roughly to 1919, they're trying to retool their image. And they're also trying to retool their purpose uh, and adapt hmm. it to the interwar language of the League of Nations. Uh, these guys are very adaptive. Uh, and I started being interested in more than just the colonial officials, Right. So in the book, I look at colonial officials, I look at colonial lobbying groups, um, and I look at settlers, both those that are repatriated back to Germany on condition of the mandatory powers that take over these areas in Africa and the Pacific, and also those that remain, uh, which uh, there's these chief oddities, uh, mainly what was once german southwest africa becomes the mandate of southwest africa it's now modern day namibia where over 7,000 germans are allowed to remain by the south african government which is a dominion of the british empire but is yet holding a mandate on behalf of the leading nations so the more i dove into this the more questions i had because there's so many interesting angles to this you have internationalism trying to reinvent and re-justify Uh, the civilizing mission rhetoric uh, of imperialism while trying to justify the seizure of another European power's colonies. So that's one question. Then you've got these German colonials that are demanding restitution, but then others are trying to figure out, well, how do we work within the system to justify that we are still European, that we are still civilizers in this framework the League of Nations has constructed, to German settlers that are fed up with German national identity being centered in what they now view as a bankrupt uh, German state, um, Mm -hmm. morally and national identity-wise bankrupt state, both in the imperial Kaiserreich and in the Weimar era, because they feel like they were left out, left behind, betrayed. Uh, And so they're creating their own sense of what it means to be German, an African Heimat, if you will. and then you've got these questions of sovereignty of who's actually got jurisdiction over this, and what does that mean for citizenship? Uh, because does is it the allied powers that hold these German colonies? Is it the League of Nations that holds these? Is it the mandatory powers that the League of Nations assigned uh, to administer and govern these? So those would be Britain, France, um, Japan, Belgium, the Union of South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. And the weirdest of those are uh, Japan, because it's the only non-European power in the mix, non-European as far as mm-hmm. who's ethnically dominating the government. And then the British dominions, which seems like Britain's double-dipping there by giving its own dominions, which are these nominally quasi-autonomous states within the British Empire that have their own parliaments, their own prime ministers, but are still tied to the monarchy and the British Empire uh, and its foreign policy decisions, administering things that the the League of Nations is giving to them and then checking on. Uh, and then just investigating how these Germans from the imperial period fit in this entire framework and the various careers that they make. Um, the other thing that I started to to think through and challenge was sort of this revised Sonderweg, uh that keeps cropping up with the Uh, a a variant of Hannah Arendt's thesis about the connection between imperialism and the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Um, Hannah Arendt tied European imperialism, looking primarily at British and French, actually, but tied it to increasing brutality uh, that leads to events like the Holocaust. And then we get folks like Jürgen Zimmerer and others, Isabel Hull, for example, uh, that are pointing out well no germany is unique in this that its imperial past specifically things like the herero genocide that occurred in 1904 to 1907 and the brutal suppression of the majimaji rebellion in east africa point to a a pattern of brutalization and While I see the the point of that and trying to understand how moments of extreme brutality and violence lead to other moments of extreme brutality and violence, Hmm. um, what kept striking me over and over again is, okay, they're making the connection between the imperial period and then they jump to the 30s and the 40s. So there's this huge gap in the 1920s and early 30s that they're not examining. What's happening there? Um, What's, to borrow Jeff Ely's line, the, the crooked line? Uh, between 1919 and uh, 1933, right? Um, And do these folks really fit with that? And what I found was that colonial Germans are more of a mixed bag. Uh, They're not necessarily ready-made Nazis. Um, Mm -hmm. They are definitely conservative uh, for their period, definitely racist as all get-out, definitely comfortable in many instances with murder of other ethnic groups but they're not necessarily uh, on board with the Nazi program, and they don't necessarily fit with it. Uh, And they try to make more efforts and overtures in the 1920s, uh, at least, with the League of Nations. So that's interesting how adaptive these folks become, Uh, which kind of led me to the title for the book, which was Revenants of the German Empire, which Revenants, for those in the audience who don't know what that word means, it just means undead, somebody who keeps coming back. Uh, from the the grave, which is essentially what these figures keep doing. Uh, They keep sort of resurrecting themselves and trying to insert themselves into contemporary debates, whether it's the internationalism of the League of Nations, uh, debates over the nature of the Weimar Republic, the Locarno Conference, the Manchurian Crisis, uh, or even uh, ultimately trying to insert themselves and see where they fit with the, the Nazi regime which Villa Sandler sort of picks up where I leave off uh, in my book. She picks up in her mm-hmm. book, Empire and the Heimat, and really just dives into, okay, here's what they do in the Nazi regime war. Um, and there's just this wealth of conversation that, yeah, there's these connected threads, but it's a little bit more complicated uh, than what has been outlined before. Uh, and so we need to very carefully examine that not only for fully understanding how one point of brutality leads to another, but also how, in many ways, uh, the League of Nations um, and our ideals about liberal internationalism and uh, those concepts as being uh, antithetical to uh, colonialism really need to be challenged because they are, as you know from your research and uh, others, they're really kind of complicit with empire and perfectly comfortable with its creation, maintenance, and perpetuation, uh, and justification as best they can, uh, by any means, uh, Mm. including creating sort of this new international imperialism, uh, that the league of nations really sets the groundwork for much of the 20th century on how empire will be maintained, even if decolonization or a breakdown of European authority occurs. Uh, Mm trying to bridge that gap Uh, and so there's these lasting legacies that we need to examine in each of these cases
1: interesting thank you thank you it's incredibly layered and complex and maybe we should start the best place to start with is the end of what you've said and, and talk about how the colonial germans were interacting with the league of nations language tactics how were they trying to get what they want to adapt, as you put it?
2: Yeah. So this is one of the things that was the most fun in the project, is looking at half the, the, to borrow Quentin Skinner's phrase, which his theories were pretty influential on in my understanding of this, um, the politics of language and how um, the language of the League of Nations, which is itself sort of doing this weird bending itself in half back and forward to try and say, well, uh, this version of imperialism is wrong, but we're going to improve the civilizing mission and make it better, um, and how Germans sort of insert themselves into that by a couple of methods. First uh, and foremost, they point out the hypocrisy of being excluded. Uh, so Germany is excluded from getting a mandate or being allowed to hold its colonies after the war because of this argument that they are extreme uh, brutal colonizers, that somehow they stand out from the rest of Europe in this period, which figures like Theodore Seitz, who was the governor of Southwest Africa, and uh, Heinrich Schnee, who had been the governor of East Africa, are very quick to point out uh, this is very much the pot calling the kettle black. If we look Mm. at the atrocities of Britain and France, uh, I mean, just think about France and Algeria in the 1830s and on, uh, these are exceptionally brutal colonial empires. Uh, at every turn. And so the Germans are quick to point out the brutality of this. Um, the second strategy that they deploy is pointing to Woodrow Wilson and his 14 points and the concept of self determination. Uh, and they s- twist it into something that's fascinating, which is in order to salvage their notion of what it means to be European. Uh, and having been stripped of their empire and the civilizing mission, which is a key component of European identity at this point, uh, they claim victimhood status in 1919 and beyond into the 1920s and say, what you have done is you've deprived Germany of the right to self-determine as an empire. Mm. Um, So self-determination, Wilson's conception, uh, flawed as it is, is the notion that a nation can determine its borders and uh, have its own state, essentially. Um, and this creates a lot of problems in interwar Europe, uh, ultimately leading to a lot of things that build into the Holocaust and World War II um, because of its flawed conception. But it's mostly this national identity construction, building from uh, a century-plus of national identity movements and then Wilson's own understanding of it, uh, which sort of gets solidified into international law uh, with the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Tsarist Russia, um, but not in the German Empire. Uh, even though the colonial empire is broken up, uh, these individual states are not granted self-determination, these colonies. Uh, so the, Germans are, the colonial Germans have come at this from two angles. One, they're going to twist self-determination to argue, we are European, we are German. As such, we have the right to determine ourselves as an empire because that's what it means to be European in our understanding of it, and you've deprived us of that. The other thing they do is they point to the hypocrisy of the entire mandate system structure uh, very quickly and say, you say you want self-determination, but self-determination for whom? Uh, There's a bunch of folks that don't get self-determination. These colonial subjects are not allowed to self-determine. And so Germany sort of throws its lot, uh, these colonial Germans throw their lot in with the colonial subjects that they once oppressed and say, well, we, like them, are victims and we will speak for them in this weird twisting of the rhetoric. Uh, But in their conception of it, what they're arguing is that colonial subjects as colonial Germans understand it, don't have the right to self-determinism. A nation state, um, which would be the truer understanding of it, which a lot of anti-colonial activists and independence movements interpret Wilson's words to mean, okay, so maybe there's Mm -hmm. a support for national identity. In the colonial German framework, no, 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 no. You have the right to self-determine which empire you belong to. (laughs) And so... They, they take these phrases and they're, they're playing with them, and it's very familiar uh, to anybody who's watched politics at any era. <laughs> uh, mm. it, it feels like they're taking rhetoric from the opposition, twisting it to suit their own ends, right? Uh, and So that's a big component here. But claiming that victimhood status is something that a bunch of these colonial German groups will do. Uh, whether it's um, the settlers, who will ask in Southwest Africa the right to self-determine as their own autonomous uh, nation-state, or want to in some ways, or have these interesting questions of sovereignty uh, in the Southwest African case. Whether it's settlers that were repatriated to Germany, uh, demanding the right to self-determine that they are allowed to go back to Africa, uh, that that's where they truly belong. They don't belong within the confines of the German nation-state as it's been constructed in 1919. Or these colonial officials um, that view it as this larger question of European identity and what it means to be a civilized state in this era. Uh, And they're really trying to grapple with this language, not just for the purpose of colonial revisionism and colonial restitution. It's clear that this is upsetting their understanding of themselves. By being Mm -hmm. excluded, from empire by other European powers, they feel as if they're being told they are not European. Uh, and so they start to work within that, uh, language to turn it and twist it around, uh, before ultimately, uh, working within those systems once they start to gain traction. there.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Maybe tell us a bit about that, because you do write, and as you've said there, that colonial Germans, those who'd invested time, money in the german colonial empire their national identity was changed in that process and you also use a phrase imperial identity which seems related but maybe also somehow different maybe you could say a bit about this the heimat abroad which you mentioned
2: yeah so the heimat abroad is that concept was sort of inspired by three different scholars uh that i've been reading alan confino the nation is local metaphor where he looked at how the local uh heimat concept blends with national identity to create something unique so that the local is able to see itself within the nation. Uh, And then also um, Celia Applegate's uh, Nation of Provincials, where she looks at how this concept evolves over time. And then finally, uh, Peter Judson's Guardians of the Nation, which has nothing to do with Germany and everything to do with the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Hmm. but how people explicitly reject a centralized nationalist narrative in favor of more opportunistic nationalism. Um, And so depending on which group you're looking at among the colonial Germans, you get a different setting there. Um, And with the settlers, what we see is more a blend of Confino's concept of uh, the Heimat is the nation, the local one, and Judson's notion of a rejection of a central uh, national identity in favor of these more frontier identities that are more opportunistic and able to adapt and switch. Mm-hmm. So in that chapter on Southwest Africa, where I look at the Germans that were allowed to remain, uh, what I examine is how for uh, them, this concept is more fluid. Uh, they don't want to return to being part of the German empire. They have their own conception of what it means to be German, that that's tied to the African soil. Uh, at this point, that they've made themselves uh, more German than the uh, metropole could possibly be. And they're rejecting that identity. And in so doing, they're willing to accept um, subjecthood from the dominion of South Africa within the British Empire, but then maintain their cultural national identity instead uh, as an autonomous unit. So they continually become a born in the side of the, uh, the South African uh, state as they build this up. And then the alternative, the other side of this that I look at is the East African German settlers, most of whom are expelled. And this is what happens in most of the mandate authorities. Uh, when one of the mandatory powers takes over, they immediately expel as many of the Germans as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. and with the East African Germans in what would now be Tanzania, Rwanda, and Burundi, these folks go home to a Germany they don't recognize. And so they start writing memoirs about a truer German identity that resided in Africa, Uh, sort of this hyperbolic settler identity of a place where men were men and women were women. And we see it crop up a lot, but they're... They're they're really pushing this notion that true Germanists can only emerge from the challenges and the trials by fire that one experiences on the African continent, not on this weak-willed metropolitan European states uh, directive. And so these narratives put them at odds uh, with national activists in Germany who are trying to build up identities for themselves, uh, whether it's the Weimar German state or even later the Nazi German state, uh, these folks don't fit neatly in those narratives, right? Because they have their own localized conception of it that's on a different continent entirely. Uh, But they also um, don't fit with the colonial activists, uh, especially the officials who are trying to recapture these colonies Mm. uh, and reclaim them through international law or other means because these folks don't want to be part of the empire anymore. Um, They have this settler colonial identity that's at odds with the colonial official's notion of national identity, which is an imperial national identity, that in order to be German, you have to be European, and European means engaging in the civilizing mission, which means holding overseas colonies, and that all of that has to come together. So you get these conflicting narratives. Uh, about national identity and nationalism from these various groups. Uh, in a lot of ways, that was one of the most fun chapters to write. Uh, those two, the one on the, the memoirs written by East African settlers who are sent back to Weimar, Germany, uh, and just, huh, they, they are constantly making references to how dark, dreary, and gray uh, and weak the metropolitan state is compared mm. to lush, vibrant, tropical sun uh, that was East Africa, and they lament that their children will not have that. So it's more than just this uh, property issue and loss of investment. It's become more of an identity matrix for them uh, in a really substantial way. And so they're going to continue to petition the government and other governments around the world to try and get back uh, to where they think life was better and that their national identity was more fulfilled. Um, and a lot of those i didn't get a chance to do this in in the book but a lot of those later in the nazi era start to be those memoirs become popular reads but the nazi state has to edit out a lot of the content uh so in the reprints you see all references to germany being weak or uh, the german spirit not being true in europe or the betrayals of the imperial regime, even though the Nazis don't have any love for the Kaiserreich in real substantial ways either, they censor those out um, because they just want these sort of glorious narratives of Germans doing really cool, badass, King Solomon's minds type stuff, right, uh, to drive up this notion of German uh, strength and power. Uh, but they don't want any challenge to a centralized national narrative uh, and I hope at one point I'll be able to include that in a later edition or spin it off into an article. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, there's there's more to that story as it continues to unfold.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and since, since you're leading us there, maybe we could go under the hood and actually talk about some of the sources. Because clearly language is so important, whether it's for the identity formation or petitioning the words, adapting them. Could you tell us a bit about, about what you were looking at? And how you came to know that you were looking at a story that that we end up seeing here in the book.
2: Yeah, so there were a couple of things uh, that that went into that a lot, actually. So some of the first ones I'm looking at are memoirs and thinking about them in a different way. So instead of thinking of memoirs from these colonial Germans as a representation of colonial life, I'm thinking about them more as a representation of the time in which they were produced. Uh, and this longing for empire, because typically what we see in a lot of the literature on imperialism is folks will look at memoirs and say, okay, what can we read about the colonial experience during the imperial period? And instead, what I'm arguing is, is, no, this tells us a lot more about when the book was written and the emotions of the loss of empire and how that's coming to play in those uh, areas. So that was one aspect that I was looking at. Then I was also looking at uh, published works and Um, sort of petitions to get uh, the colonies back and make the case on the world stage by colonial officials, which are having more of an international reach. They're trying to convince Brits, Americans, Frenchmen, uh, other groups that they deserve to be an empire again and sort of make their case on a global scale. Schnee's book, for instance, is translated into a dozen languages uh, Mm -hmm. in the 1920s, which is just insane um, at this point. Uh, trying to build up this influence. The the most insane one is the fact that it's translated Polish, which seems just a little uh, insensitive at the time uh, to Poland and Germany's attitudes about Poland in that period, too. But I digress. Um, then I looked at uh, the documents for uh, the Permanent Mandates Commission, which Germans wind up getting a seat on after Locarno, which this is the international oversight board for the League of Nations to look at how the mandatory authorities are doing at governing the former holdings of the German Empire and the Ottoman Empire, which is also broken up and uh, divested into various mandates, as well as the Republic of Turkey and the Kingdom of Arabia and a couple of other smaller chunks. Um, And what I started to find there was looking at these documents, their, their government briefs, their government missives, but also their own personal papers from the two individuals that serve on the Permanent Mandates Commission, uh, Ludwig Kassel and Julius Ruppel, is uh, they have a really complicated job uh, trying to reconcile German colonial interests with their very real bureaucratic role on the League of Nations Permanent Mandates Commission that they are starting to accept as a true job. Uh, that they are investing more and more and buying into this rhetoric, and that's putting them at odds with German colonial figures, especially figures like Theodor Seitz. And that led me down the rabbit hole of personal correspondence, letter networks, so many letters, uh, and epistolary networks that were just insane, uh, back and forths, including telegrams that are sent and uh, uh, transcripts of telephone calls they keep track of, uh, and the most interesting one there is Theodore cites within an hour of hearing that somebody had criticized Germany's Southwest, Germany's record in Southwest Africa, a German had criticized it. He, uh, gets a telegram from a friend about that speech. And then he immediately, an hour later calls the German foreign office and there's a transcript of a phone call with him fuming and venting at that. Uh, and then he sends out a bunch of letters, <laughs> across the globe and telegrams uh, around Germany to try and do damage control on it. Uh, And it just made me think if this guy had had Twitter back then, he would have been a nightmare. Um, Theodore Seitz was just this spider in a web waiting for any correspondence about it to immediately lash out. Um, So that's a source base. Then looking at these various colonial interest groups and their correspondence, um, and then uh, the correspondence related to the Manchurian Commission, uh, and uh, these uh, dynamics with individuals on that body. Um, it took a while to figure out what the story was, because when you're looking at the archives at the, the federal archives in Germany uh, and the National Archives in Britain and other places, uh, if you just looked at one archive, you'd see that standard narrative of colonial Germans equal Nazis. Uh, but if you start to look at multiple archives, you see a more complex web of interaction. So if you start to look at League of Nations materials at the same time as you look at the German archives, looking at multiple German archives, not just the central one in uh, and then integrate the National Archives and the Pacific Manuscript Bureau in Sydney, you suddenly get a really complicated image. Um, and what it leads you to see is a very diverse sets of views on how Germany's colonial legacy should be maintained uh, and if it should uh, among officials and settlers and missionaries, and then diverse views on what the strategy should be and diverse views on who your allies in that fight are um, over time. Mm. Uh, And then you see these complex shifts in ideology from some of these figures to over time, as you merge from 1919 to 1932, um, chief among those is Heinrich Schnee again. So he goes from 1919, being one of the most vocal critics of the League of Nations, to in 1932, serving on the Manchurian Commission uh, in um, China, looking at Japan's imperial invasion there and helping the League assess whether this is a Self determined state, the Manchukuo state, or if this is imperial aggression, which the League of Nations says it doesn't want uh, and wants to prevent war uh, between two League member states, China and Japan. And he winds up outlining it very meticulously and very heavily buying into this League of Nations structure and making an argument at the end that Japan has violated the terms and that as such, uh, it should lose its mandates. And of course, Germany should get them back. Um, So working within a legal framework, he goes from hating the League of Nations and its mandate system to seen as a tool to get it back, which initially makes him wildly unpopular with the Nazi state as he tries to shift gears yet again. And then this guy tries to do it again in 1945 and 46, where he tries to undergo denazification because he wants to work with the UN on the trustee council, which is what the mandate system turns into. So he's just this constant chameleon, just give him empire and he's fine, but if you deny him that, he doesn't know what to do with himself uh, on up until when he dies in a car crash. (laughs) So he's just this, he's sort of an image of what these folks are doing throughout, whether they're settlers or colonial officials trying to grapple with making sense of their lives in this new environment. Uh, And so just took a lot of digging in different archives and then a lot of mapping it out um, to see where this narrative was going.
1: Wow. (laughs) It really is quite quite an enormous amount, and it, it clearly is also more than just a German story. I know that's your focus, and sort of charting this crooked line, crooked at best, from colonial Germans to Nazi empire. In some cases, as with Schnee, it sounds like there's not even a line with all these other archives, Britain, Australia, do you think of the book as then also being an international history or a history of more than Germany, or Germany's part in a bigger history, would you say?
2: Very much so. It's a it's an international history. Um, the Germans are a way to examine that. Um, so typically when we look at, when scholars have looked at uh, the League of Nations or internationalism in general, uh, two things come across. One is that The League of Nations was an abysmal failure, uh, is what they think, what they argue, because it failed to do its core job, which was preventing another war, is one argument that the scholarship has made. The other is they tend to focus on the big powers within the League, specifically Britain, France. Uh, And then if they look at anywhere else, they only look at the United States uh, and Russia, who are excluded from the League of Nations, but still sort of have this ghostly impact, Hmm. on the League of Nations at every turn. Um, So there's a couple of things that I wanted to do a course correct on there with internationalism and the League of Nations. One is we need to rethink uh, this idea that the League of Nations failed because we need to re-examine what its original intent was. Uh, And although it did aim to prevent war, another thing it's trying to do in this moment is preserve imperialism and create a new justice for Empire uh, in 1919. Um, this was Empire done wrong as they thought. Uh, this was too aggressive. Uh, but we can do this we can still do the civilizing mission. It's sort of trying to rebaptize that as a legitimate European ideal. Uh, and finding another way to do that through international oversight, which ostensibly makes it look like you are tutoring these civilizations towards independence, but you have no intention of doing so. It's just sort of a veneer. And in that, uh, the League of Nations was um, wildly successful because that system maintained until at least 1994 uh, because the League of Nations mandate system is rolled over into the UN trust system. And the last of those, which was a German colony, the island of Palau, which was one of their Pacific holdings, Is not granted independence until 1994. Hmm. um, So, 80 years after World War I started. (laughs) Um, So, in that way, the UN has, the the League of Nations in its subsequent uh, development in the UN was successful in a bad way in preserving some of these imperial frameworks and giving them new life through internationalism as a mechanism and creating new forms, uh, starting the groundwork for new forms of domination on the stage. So their success, we keep looking for positive successes, but sometimes it's the bad that wins out, uh, and we need to recognize those legacies too. The other area in which the League of Nations, we could view it as a partial success, is the Manchurian Commission, strangely enough, which is um, often thought of as one of the League of Nations uh, death knells, uh, how it starts to decline, that and the Italian how they handled the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, this is thought, well, the League of Nations has no teeth, and so it has no purpose. Mm. But again, if we rethink the framework, uh, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of recreating a common shared European notion of how Europe interacts with the globe uh, in an imperial framework, then the Manchurian Commission is a success because Germany is successfully reintegrated into that for a very brief moment because you get somebody who's an ardent uh, critic of the League of Nations suddenly being on board with it in Manchuria and Germany participating that as an e- in that as an equal partner. Um, that's part of what I want to, to re-examine with internationalism. The other part is we need to rethink the... The way we examine it, uh, we tend to look at it in terms of state actors, and we need to think about the role of interest groups and private citizens and individuals in internationalism uh, because they have an impact on this, too. Um, And that came across more in a chapter that sadly had to be cut from the book because of length and the contract with Oxford on how long the book would be. Um, But there was a chapter that should be between chapters four and five uh, that... Has been published as an article in the Journal of International History, uh, Peripheral Players. That's about the Locarno Conference and how colonial lobbying groups are trying to influence uh, the outcome at Locarno while Stresemann is sitting there trying to negotiate with figures like Aristide Briand and Austin Chamberlain. Um, and they're this little group that doesn't represent a huge chunk of the German population, uh, but The activities that they're doing by uh, giving interviews to newspapers that, yes, Stresemann intends to get a colony for Germany. Uh, Seitz is doing interviews where he's saying this. And Stresemann's like, no, I'm not. You're effing things up for me as far as my negotiations with these these overseas powers. You're you're really messing this framework up. And so we need to think about how these smaller groups, these uh, individuals, non-state actors, have an impact on this global stage. And the Germans really help us do that. And what I'm hoping to encourage, as I wrote in uh, eight, uh, in the American Historical Review in a, a uh, piece that was a reflections as a is that others will look at stories like that for other powers, other individuals, other groups, other national identities, uh, other ethnic identities, that are frequently excluded from our discussion of how the League of Nations or these international conferences function because they do play a role. They're not just screaming on the sidelines. Um, they're having an impact and we need to examine how their impact is playing out. Uh, whether it's Germany or Ireland or uh, individuals that live in the mandates, um, like uh, indigenous African groups in the various mandates of Cameroon, Togo, uh, East Africa, Southwest Africa, or uh, Samoans that play a big role in debates over so- sovereignty in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond, uh, we need to look at these more carefully instead of just the big dogs on the block mm-hmm. uh, and not just discount their contribution and see where they're having influence for better or worse in shaping the narrative
1: well well sean thank you that's a a substantial but incredibly generative i hope call to research and thank you for publishing this book that's done so much to to get it started or to continue it i know you mentioned your many mentors we've taken up 50 minutes now of your morning so perhaps at the very end if you could just tell us a little bit about what you're working on now Um, because i know the book came out two years ago and i'm sure you have shifted gears to one, if not two or three more projects in the time in between.
2: Yeah, so in, in between, I've actually published a second book. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Already. Yeah, so it's, it's been a little bit of a... Uh, my wife's been frustrated because I've, I've dived down some rabbit holes with uh, <laughs> publishing two books in essentially the span of two years. Uh-huh. Uh, so I, I've been told to take a slight hiatus from books. Articles are okay. Uh, but books I need to, to break because I disappear down a rabbit hole for a long period of time. Those. Um, so the second book um, was on uh, looking at public health, the history of it, and a global historical perspective. So that's chronic disparities uh, is the title of that one. And that was sort of building off of some of my interest that was emerging in the first book. Um, so uh, as I was conducting research in Germany, Britain, and other places around the globe, and I started looking more at League of Nations holdings, I became increasingly fascinated with uh, history of public health on an international scale, uh, which has turned out to be a very very timely interest to have, uh, strangely enough. Um, but uh, that really grew out of another, a a couple of avenues. So in 2009, I caught the pandemic flu that was going around um, and was isolated for a time. Uh, And then in 2014 to 2016, Emory played a major role in treating Ebola patients during the uh, global epidemic that emerged from that. Not quite a full-blown pandemic, but uh, cases around the globe of Ebola. And so that started a number of questions. And also at the time that I was in graduate school, uh, Mary Kay Babel, who's now an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh, was also at Emory as a postdoc, and she was giving talks about her research on uh, the politics of disease control in the German colonies. So that was fascinating. So while I was in the archives. I just started looking at this stuff for, for fun, <laughs> basically, on the side, uh, with all that free time that I had. I was in the archive for hours each day, uh, most of the day. I closed that thing down most days. Um, And I just started collecting it and amassing it. Um, And what I found was my interest in German colonialism and internationalism uh, sparked this huge interest in internationalism at large with things like structures of public health around the globe. And so a lot of what I've been working on recently relates to that. The second book, obviously, but then that's sort of a primer for what I'm working down, down the road which unfortunately has been put on hiatus because of COVID uh, and uh, some restrictions with travel that emerged at my university in 2020. Um, But there's a couple of projects in the pipeline related to that. I have plans for a third book. It will take me some time uh, on League of Nations narcotics controls in the 20s and 30s and how Britain and German interests are strangely aligned in this period to prevent and stymie international opiate, 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 controls. Um, I almost said opioid. That's why I was stuttering there for a minute. Uh, their interests are sort of aligned because Britain in this period is still the world's largest drug dealer at that point with its opium holdings, uh, around the globe. And then Britain, Germany is still one of the big dogs in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, even after world war one. And that's going to continue throughout the 20th and end of the 21st century. Uh, and there's these weird collusions that occur, even when Germany's not part of the League of Nations, to try and disrupt uh, specifically morphine, heroin, and opium controls that the League of Nations is trying to do. And so I want to explore that story further. Um, so that could be a rich vein, and I came across evidence of that in the National Archives and in the Federal Archives of Germany and other small archival holdings, around both countries. Um, Other things that I've been working on are uh, how the League of Nations is engaging in public health controls in the mandates uh, and how that question of sovereignty plays out since they're overseeing it, but they're going through a mandatory authority and then you've got these other issues between uh, indigenous groups, European groups, um, and international control. Uh, And so I've got a series of articles that I'm working up off of League of Nations Health Organization, Health Section, and Mandate Section archives, which luckily are accessible online right now. Uh, so shout out to Geneva for making that possible. Um, so I'm working up articles on League of Nations uh, protocols in Southwest Africa related to uh, malaria and tuberculosis, then looking at League of Nations protocols with East Africa related to Rinderpest, uh, which was a a cattle disease that was only recently eradicated from the planet. And then there's one side pet project that I keep wanting to do, and I've got a lot of notes and bundles on it that I haven't had time to finish because of book one, then book two, then COVID. And that's on uh, paleontological digs uh, that Germans are conducting in Germany, East Africa, the 10 degree expeditions, which you, some of your listeners have probably heard of. Uh, and that's born out of my, my first trip to Germany <laughs> uh, in grad school. The, the first research trip, not the long, second one. And I went to the, the Berlin Natural History Museum and I saw the massive dinosaurs that they've got there, like a, a Kentrosaurus and a Giraffe and all these things. And I got a little overly exuberant uh, because one of the, the plates on it, on one of the bones, said, uh, German East Africa as the collection point and I started bouncing up and down and then a security guard came over um, as I was getting really excited uh, and said was ist los? Uh, So what's wrong and I'm like oh crud I'm going to be kicked out of here I've done something horrible something wrong and so I started explaining in German that well I researched this and that and all of that jazz and then he said commit me Come with me i'm like okay i'm i'm hosed i'm done uh, and he took me to this back room in the museum uh where there's these uh fossil holdings that are not on display and a bunch of catalog card entries and things like that and he just said "Mach was, have fun um and so i just tooled around there for an evening until it closed and then he and i grabbed a beer afterwards and so i want to do something with those materials too on the political and cultural dimensions of these paleontological expeditions, uh, and how notions of civilization and evolution are being retooled uh, by these uh, paleontological frameworks uh, in the 1900s.
1: Well, well, I hope you find time for that because that is something I would love to read. Yeah, um,
2: I absolutely. Really, I really and... want to play around with that, uh, and I thought about including it in the the dissertation and later book, and then. It just didn't fit uh and so i set it aside and i just keep reaching for it at my desk (laughs) so
1: well we'll let you get back to your work now so that you can you can get to it more quickly but thank you sean it's been an absolute pleasure um revenants of the german empire published in 2019 with oxford university press thanks for talking to us here at new books in german studies
2: thank you jack